almost Christmas, and I was just telling Lee this morning, I cannot believe how quickly this year has gone by. It is absolutely nuts, and our house right now is decked out. We've got like five different nativity scenes all over the house. And by the way, we did finally get a Joseph for our nativity scene. He's got two Marys. He doesn't know which one to choose from. Um, (laughs) Never mind. And I have to admit that when I think of Christmas, when I think of the the manger scene, if you will, it is completely and utterly informed by the nativities in my house. I, I, I imagine baby Jesus just chilling. He, he doesn't look like a, a deformed alien like babies who are just born look like. He looks perfect and serene. Mary, who has just given birth, mind you, has, looks like she's just gotten out of a spa, right? Her hair is done. She's kneeling there next to her, her son, worshiping God in human flesh. Joseph's nearby. And then you have like this secondary ring. You've got the animals who were probably washed that morning because for whatever reason, the, the smells of a, a regular barn never really factor in. And then you've got shepherds over here with sheep. You've got wise men over here. You've got angels up there just kind of creating this secondary ring. And in the background, Silent Night is playing because that is like the theme music to Jesus' birth in my mind. To me, this is a little bit of what that first night typically sounds like. And go ahead. It was a quiet... her of the unbelievable his first breath turned into a cry and broke the silence of the night. quiet peaceful night when a group of shepherds were given the news an angel told them not to fear and announced where they would find the hope that had come They found him wrapped in a tiny blanket, unbelievable and perfect. The shepherds spread the news of their encounter throughout the land and broke the silence of the night. He's given one instruction. So that will retain the mind of the... Wow. Okay. That's the picture I typically have in my mind of that first Christmas Eve, right? It's, it's peaceful, sanitized, and silent, right? Jesus, God in human flesh, just kind of slips into our existence, into our reality. But if you want to step back for just a moment and consider what Jesus' birth actually meant in the grand arc of history, it completely changes our perspective. Think about this for a moment. All the way back in Genesis 3, the very beginning of creation, we see Adam and Eve sinning against God, taking a bite out of that forbidden fruit that Ken so eloquently referenced earlier about his um, fruitcake or whatever. They take a bite. Sin entered God's perfect creation and completely transformed it, warped it into something that he never intended. And as generation upon generation came and went, that sin took a deeper and more transformative hold until when Mary and Joseph were walking around, sin had pervaded all of existence. Every man, woman, and child were tainted by it. And their relationship with God was affected by it. 
Sin had ultimately formed a wedge that separated them from their creator, God. And then there's Satan, God's enemy, the original tempter in the Garden of Eden who slips in and goes, well, you know, I kind of helped them sin. I feel like I'm the rightful king of this existence. And Satan used temptation, accusation, shame and guilt to bend mankind to his will. And he knew that man's knee-jerk reaction was to think that the only way that they could get back to God was through their own efforts. And he was happy with that mentality because he realized just how incapable mankind is of earning righteousness by our own strength. And so Satan was happy with the status quo, but God wasn't. He was not about to let his children remain under the, the grip of sin and estranged from him. And so on that Christmas Eve, on that night when Jesus entered the world, when we look at it from this perspective, this was God's attempt to take back what Satan considered to be rightfully his. This was an invasion into enemy-occupied territory. And when we take it from that perspective, suddenly the entire picture that we have of the nativity changes. And so what I want to do is I want to look at that first Christmas night again. But I want to add... To go back... It was a quiet, peaceful night when the Savior was born. The Father rose from his throne in a flood of cascading light and spoke to his angelic troops. The mission was clear. Stand watch as the Messiah entered the world, and with a wave of his hand, the angels took flight, a torrent of stars shooting through the night. Joseph told Mary not to fear and reminded her of the hope that was to come. As the shining host of angels approached the tiny village, a sinister cloud of darkness began to descend from the west. The enemy had recognized the significance of this birth and was determined to put a stop to it. Shadow and light crashed together above Bethlehem. Angel and demon warriors hurled themselves at one another with brutal urgency. The battle had begun. God wrapped in a tiny blanket, unbelievable and perfect. The armies of light and darkness raged at one another, shaking the heavens in their violent struggle. Down below, thousands of angels formed a dome of protection around the manger, an eye of calm at the center of the spiritual storm. The demons attacked the wall of angels relentlessly, trying to locate a weakness. Just one opening was all they needed. But the angels held their ground as wave upon wave of evil was turned back in futile rage. His first breath turned into a cry and broke the silence of the night. Suddenly, a beam of light shot through the wall of angels and into the sky, scattering demons in its wake. It was Michael, leader of the angel army. His voice cut through the din of battle with the cry of victory. He lives. Holy, 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 he lives. It was a quiet, peaceful night when the group of shepherds were given the news. Immediately a trumpet sounded. There would be one final step. A company of angels formed up and flew away 
When they came to a field nearby, a solitary angel revealed himself to the stunned shepherds below. It was time to get the news out. An angel told them not to fear and announced where they would find the hope that had come. The angels guarded the shepherds on their journey to the manger. But as they drew near to Bethlehem, the angelic guards were surprised to see empty skies. The battle seemed to be over. The shepherds discovered the child without conflict. They found him wrapped in a tiny blanket, unbelievable and perfect. For one sweet moment, the universe seemed to pause and focus on a feeding trough where a tiny disheveled baby wrapped in an old blanket held the awestruck attention of angel man and beast the shepherds spread the news of their encounter throughout the land and broke the silence of the night the archangel michael watched as the shepherds left the manger and began to spread the news of what they had seen he was surprised that the enemy had not yet launched a counterattack. surely they hadn't given up so easily his eyes followed a man who had just spoken with a shepherd as this man made his way back inside his home a dark shadow silently slipped off the roof and onto his back. The man felt nothing, but this evil presence began to whisper into his ear. Michael's fingers tightened around the hilt of his sword as he comprehended the cruel cunning of the enemy's scheme. He scanned the horizon and began to see demons slipping out from the shadows as the shepherds passed by, dark spirits intent on crushing the seeds of hope before they could take root in human hearts. There wasn't a moment to lose. He sounded the trumpet and summoned the angelic army. For what they thought had been the end of the battle had really been the beginning of the war. Thank you. I have absolutely no idea if that's how it played out. Okay, I'm just going to start there. However, we do know this. Jesus' birth was an attack into enemy-occupied territory. God was seeking to take back his creation. And the enemy wasn't going to allow him to do so. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 12, which I'm sure is probably exactly where we would tend to go for a Christmas message. As you're turning to Revelation 12, and it's the very last book in the Bible, as you're turning there, I just want to caution us when we read this. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's something that's totally different from any form of literature that we have today. It's written metaphorically, meaning that the author, who in this case is the Apostle John, is painting pictures through metaphor. So we don't want to take everything literally. When he says that there is a, a double-edged sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, that doesn't mean that Jesus literally has a sword in his mouth. It means that he has the ability to cut, he has, he has wisdom and is able to, to speak things that cut to the heart. All right? And so we're going, to, we're going to see a picture of this nativity play out here in Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. This is verse 1 of Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And we see a picture of Mary about to give birth to Jesus. And then another sign appeared in the heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. This is a picture of Satan. It's going to become even more clear when John is going to tell us later, this is Satan I'm talking about. He has seven heads, not literally, meaning he has a lot of wisdom. He's a smart 
cunning strategist. He's got ten horns. The horn was a sign of power, so he's a very powerful being. He has seven crowns on those heads, meaning he has influence, authority in the earthly realms. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. Was there a battle going on in the spiritual realms when Jesus was born? I don't know, but it seems like that's the case. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. This is the, in chapter 11, this is the amount of time that the temple courts would be trampled on by the Gentiles. But it's also interesting that when Jesus was born, Joseph had a dream that King Herod was going to try to kill his son. And so he gathered up Mary and Jesus and they headed into the wilderness to Egypt where they waited until King Herod died, until God told him it's safe to come back. So, he, so Satan failed in his attempt to destroy the Christ child. Verse 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. The point I'm trying to get at this morning <clears throat> is that Jesus' birth was an invasion into enemy-occupied territory. Probably the best modern equivalent I can give you is D-Day. Because during the summer of 1944, Hitler and his regime had pretty much conquered all of mainland Europe. But the Allies weren't going to give up. There was one last desperate attempt to try to get a toehold onto the mainland so that they could begin to push back. And so 150,000 troops stormed the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944. They fought, they bled, and they died to try to get a toehold into enemy-occupied territory. And historians suggest that if they had failed on that day, it's likely that Hitler probably would have gone to win World War II. But the fact that they got that toehold on D-Day marked the beginning of the end. Because 11 months later, Germany would surrender. And we would celebrate V-Day, the day that the Allied forces could, could declare victory. But it's interesting that D-Day marked the beginning of the end, but it wasn't the end, was it? There were still 11 months of bloody fighting. And historians tell us that those 11 months were some of the bloodiest months of the entire war. More people died during that time than at any other point in the war. I want you to imagine for just a moment what it must have been like living in enemy-occupied Europe during those 11 months. The end is coming. D-Day has happened. The toehold has been made into enemy-occupied territory, but you still reside there. You still reside in enemy-occupied territory. And the enemy is not going to go quietly. Even though the Hitler war machine is breaking down, he is going to take as many people down with him as he can. And that's the picture that we have of the spiritual battle that rages around us. Jesus' birth and ultimately his walk to the cross where he died for our sins, that was God's D-Day. That was the day that he said, no more, I'm no longer going to allow the enemy to run roughshod over my kids. I am taking back what is rightfully mine. 
But we still look forward to the day when Jesus is going to return, overthrow Satan once and for all, establish his kingdom, where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. But we reside in the in-between. We still live in enemy-occupied territory. And it's interesting. Jump with me down to, to verse 17, because we get a picture of Satan trying to destroy Jesus in the moment that he's born. He fails at that. Then he goes to try to overthrow God and just take heaven by, by force. <clears throat> he fails at that, and he's ejected from heaven. Verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, and he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Because Satan failed there, he's on borrowed time. And he's trying to take as many people down with him as he can. Now, I, I get that many of us are probably uncomfortable with this idea of, of you know, spiritualizing in this way Christmas. Right? Maybe some of you have been around people who see a demon under every rock. Somebody who, you know, they get a flat tie on it. Oh, you know, Satan's after me. Or, or sometimes people will literally just blame the enemy for choices that they've made themselves. However, Scripture is clear that we have an enemy. Scripture is clear that there are spiritual forces that we cannot see but that still hold sway over our lives that can still affect us here and now. And we can close our eyes to it. We can ignore it. We can pretend it's not happening, but at our own risk. I think of the first Lord of the Rings installment. There's this king, a guy named King Theoden, who has a kingdom that's pretty close to where Sauron, this dark lord who's beginning to build power and is beginning to take over land, is raising an army. And there's a guy named Aragon who comes up to him and goes, Listen, you've got to get ready. We've got to go to war. And King Theoden knows that going to war might mean that his kingdom would be destroyed, might mean that he would lose his throne. And so he says, I will not risk open war. And Aragon goes, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. You can close your eyes to it. You can pretend it's not happening, but it is happening. So ignore it at your own peril. And the same can be said to us. We are at war. Every single one of us who says yes to Jesus Christ, when we say yes to him, when we allow him to come into our lives and begin to clean us up, two things happen. First, our sins, the the, the power of sin in our lives is broken. We are no longer defined by that. And we are restored into relationship with our Father in heaven. That's a great thing. But secondly, a target is painted on our back. Because we have a very real enemy that prowls around looking to take us down. We live in enemy-occupied territory. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. There's plenty of passages. Go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Just a few books to the left. It's also in your notes for those of you who are following along there. This is Peter writing to a group of Christians who have been scattered, who are, who are undergoing persecution. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. You hit like Hebrews or Colossians, you need to go back to the right just a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober-minded. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. There's a battle going on. We have a very real enemy that is out there, and he is prowling around looking for someone whom he may devour. So resist him. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Go to the left. You hit Romans, 1st or 2nd Corinthians, go right. And then my, my rule of thumb is General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It has served me well. Memorize that. So Ephesians, it's the very last chapter, chapter 6. Paul makes a similar statement about the spiritual battle that's raging around us. He says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Notice he doesn't say that so that you can overthrow Satan, but rather so you can take your stand. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against our family members. It's not against our neighbors. It's not against co-workers or people who persecute us. It's not against people who cry racism. It's not against men with nightsticks that wield power. The stuff that's going on in the world right now breaks my heart because we are fighting tooth and nail against one another, basically crying out evil and pointing at one another. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. The point that both Peter and Paul are making in these two passages we've looked at is it is not our job to overthrow Satan. That's God's job. And he's going to. D-Day has happened. The end is coming. And one day, we know from Scripture, Satan will no longer have any authority whatsoever. It is our job, rather. Our job is twofold. First, our job is to recognize that we're at war at all. To open our eyes. Secondly, it's to stand against the enemy's attacks to stand firmly, to resist them, so that he cannot continue to hold power over us. Which then begs, of course, the question, well, how do we do that? How do we stand against the enemy's attacks? How do we fight back, resist a spiritual enemy that we can't even see? And oftentimes don't even realize is there. A couple of thoughts, and I could go a lot of different places. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 6, He begins to to go through the armor of God, pieces, tools to be able to help us stand against these attacks. It's a great place to study. But there are three things in particular that I want to focus on this morning. I want to do it very quickly. First off, in order for us to be able to stand, we need to remember who we are. Throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul talks a lot about who we are. You are a son. You are a daughter of God created in his image, endowed with unique gifts, talents, and abilities. Why are we his kids? Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us. By his blood, we have been adopted into sonship and daughtership with God. So you're a son, you're a daughter of the living God. 
we're also called saints. And I know that all of us look at ourselves and go, oh, no, I'm not. I'll be the first to say, I don't deserve to be a saint. But all a saint is is somebody who is a saved sinner. And that's exactly who we are. We are called saints. We're not defined by what we've done. We're defined by what he has done for us. Thirdly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, you're ambassadors. We are ambassadors of hope and reconciliation in our schools, in our workplaces, in, in our neighborhoods. We are people who have been entrusted with the good news of what God has done. The good news that it's not on our own strength to make ourselves good enough or to earn our standing. Why is it important for us to remember who we are? Because the enemy is a liar. He's called the father of lies, and he loves to come in and begin whispering things, accusations. Tries to point at things in our life and say, this defines you. If anybody knew this, oh, they would want nothing to do with you. You're a failure. You're ugly. You're a reject. And nobody could ever possibly love you. God could never use you. Those are the kind of lies that the enemy loves to speak. The seeds he loves to try to plant. And he loves to use shame and guilt and accusation to make us believe that we are other than who we really are. Sons and daughters of God. Saints who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and rightful ambassadors of hope and reconciliation. God bless you. Secondly, how do we stand against the enemy's attacks? We need to recognize our Father's voice. Because there's a whole lot of voices for cl- that clamor for our attention. We have an enemy who loves to speak these lies, these accusations. And so we need to be able to recognize when it's our Father in heaven speaking through the Holy Spirit that's within us, or when it's another voice. Well, how can we tell the difference between God's voice through the Holy Spirit or someone else's voice, a couple of ways that I've found. First off, the Holy Spirit will never say anything that contradicts the Word of God. How do, we, how do we get to know and recognize our Father's voice? That's one of the reasons why we put so much emphasis on, hey, you need to actually become familiar with your Bible. Don't just expect Lee and I to kind of open it up and help you understand it. You need to get in here. You need to read it because this is the way that we begin to recognize our Father's voice. Because we have an enemy who likes to twist scripture, who likes to twist truth, who likes to bring in things that, have, that feel true. I mean, I think of when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, right? Satan came up to him and straight up quoted scripture to try to get him to do something. But Jesus recognized that he was taking a quote out of context and it was contradictory to the word of God, the whole word of God. And so he was able to reject Satan's ploy. So the first thing is, if you ever hear anything spoken, even if it's spoken by Lee or myself, that contradicts something in this book, then chances are that's not from God, and you can go ahead and ignore it. Another way that we can recognize the Holy Spirit's voice within us versus the enemy's voice is that the Holy Spirit will convict us, but the enemy will condemn us. And there's a very big difference between the two of those things. Both of them are in terms of areas that we need to look at and probably work on. But when the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to us, His motivation is to build us up and restore us to relationship. 
So he uses conviction. Hey, this is an area that we need to look at. Now, stand up and let's walk this way. Put those things down. Walk away from that junk. The enemy, he uses condemnation. Oh my goodness, you're disgusting. How on earth could you have fallen too far? You have screwed up too much. God would never, ever forgive you for, and so on and so forth. Conviction brings life. Condemnation brings death. And so the Holy Spirit convicts and the enemy condemns. And if you are feeling condemned, if you are feeling like you just don't measure up, that you have fallen too far for God to ever forgive you, that is not from our Father in heaven. And you need to stand firmly against that. So we need to remember who we are and whose we are. We need to begin to recognize our Father's voice. And then finally, we need to make sure that we don't stand alone. I go back to that, that passage in First Peter that we read where it, it likens Satan to a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone whom he may devour. Well, any of you guys who have ever watched like Animal Planet or something, you know how lions hunt, right? They don't just go and attack the herd. They look for stragglers. They look for the sickly ones that have kind of isolated themselves. They look for the, the one that strayed from the herd that is now isolated and vulnerable, and that's who they attack. And if they can't, get, if they can't find one there, then maybe they'll push on the, the herd hoping that one of them will run off by itself. And that's who lions attack. Because when you're isolated, you're vulnerable. And we were not created to do life alone. We were created to be in relationship with our Father in heaven, but we were also created to do life with one another. I mean, when God is creating everything. He's going, oh, this is good, that's good, that's good. The one thing he says is not good in his creation was that the man was alone. We were created for community. We are created to do life with others. And if you want to be able to stand firmly against the enemy's attacks, if you want to, to be able to discern Truth from lies, having people in your lives that you can lean on, that can speak truth in love to build up rather than tear down, those are tremendously important. That is why we continue to meet week after week. And I know that there are people out there that go, you know what, I have a relationship with God. It's a personal relationship. I don't need to go to church. Okay, well, good luck on that one. Because we were not created to do life alone. And if you want to be able to stand firmly against the enemy's attacks, doing so in community with other people is one of the very best ways that I know of. Which is why I place such a huge emphasis on doing life in small groups. Because even though we are a small church, it's still difficult to truly be known in a group this size. And throughout the week, when you're getting together with people in your small group, you're known. People recognize when you're not there. And I love that. So how do we stand against the, the, the enemy's attacks? Know who you are. Recognize your father's voice. And don't stand alone. Uh, in wrapping up, I, I realize that this is not the kind of Christmas message you probably anticipated this morning. I get it. But the reality is this is truth. This is what's really going on. And it, it, it helps us recognize what was really going on on, on that not-so-silent night some 2,000 years ago? Jesus was not just this baby who slipped into our reality quietly. This was an invasion into enemy-occupied territory because our Father in Heaven had had enough. No longer would He allow the enemy to run roughshod over His children. 
It ends now. And this was his D-Day. The first step in taking back from the enemy what he had stolen. Through deception, through lies, through accusation, through shame, through guilt. That was God's D-Day. And we look forward to V-Day. We look forward to the day that Jesus is going to return. Make all things right. Reestablish his kingdom here on earth. And once and for all, silence Satan. But we, we live in the in-between, the already but not yet. And we are at war whether we choose to recognize that fact or not. And so this Christmas, as we tell the story of Jesus' birth, as we, we thank God for the gift that he has given us because he gave the first and most perfect gift, It's both an opportunity for us to say, thank you, God. Thank you for loving us enough that even though we were in rebellion openly against you, you moved towards us. And you did everything that needed to be done so that we could have a relationship with you, that we could be reconciled to you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming as a baby. But it's also an opportunity to look forward to the day that Jesus will come back and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come fix this world. And in the in-between, God, use us. Use us to be light in our neighborhoods. Use us to be light in our families. May we be faithful ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to those this Christmas season who desperately need hope, who are hurting deeply, because we have a very real enemy. So may we stand firmly and help others to stand as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for moving towards us when we <laughs> didn't want to move towards you. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to be born in human flesh, to suffer, and ultimately to pay the ultimate penalty so that we could be reconciled to our Father in heaven. God, open our eyes to the wounds that we already carry around from the enemy, the lies, the accusations, the things that we have accepted about ourselves that are utter lies from the pit of hell. Give us the discernment so that we can begin to to stand against the enemy's attacks. More than anything, God, would you use us to glorify you? Would your kingdom come? Would your will be done here on earth, here on our hearts, in this community, just as it is in heaven? Pray this in Jesus, in your name. Amen.